I needed a job after the thing because no one would hire me. So this came along and I took the job. And it turned out better than it had any right to. We discarded one element of Stephen King's story, which was the ghost of the owner would sit in the back seat. I thought that was a bit cheesy. I don't know, maybe I made a mistake. But it turned out okay. Those are words from John Carpenter himself on his 1983 film, Christine. Seeing Pieces and Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and this is a special features episode. And these monthly bonus episodes are outside of the filmographies of the current director in focus. Special features came about because I want to talk to someone I love about a film either they love or I love. And hopefully we both love. And it turns out... And I definitely did this on purpose that today, December 9th, is the 40th anniversary of Christine. So I hope you enjoy. A quick synopsis of the film. A nerdish boy buys a, a nerdish boy buys a strange car with an evil mind of its own, and his nature starts to change to reflect it. The tagline for the film is, she'll possess you, then destroy you. She's death on wheels. She's Christine. The film stars Keith Gordon as Arnie, John Stockwell as Dennis, Alexandra Paul as Lee, Robert Prosky as Darnell, and Harry Dean Stanton as Junkins. It's written by Bill Phillips, directed by John Carpenter, cinematography by Donald M. Morgan, and edited by Marion Rothman. So today my guest is Nick Scheist, and I know Nick because he runs a film club that I'm a part of. It runs every Saturday on Twitter, and I'm still going to call it Twitter. And I've been a part of it now since I joined at the end of last year. So it's going on almost a full year. I've been able to watch stuff that's outside of what I typically watch or rewatch some good stuff. And I know you also have your own podcasts, namely one of them being Bad Movies We Love. So first, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Of course, my pleasure. When you asked me, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, Felicia, <laughs> actually trust me to come on here and and talk about something that isn't like a piece of garbage like I normally talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we've done like, that's why I love the, the film club because we've covered like a wide array of stuff, even stuff that I did not think that I would enjoy. And it's good to kind of push yourself outside of you know just watching stuff where everyone in the movie is now dead so <laughs> nice to watch some modern stuff well like part of the reason that i love the club is because i got to meet someone like you who basically has like a much different coverage zone of films mm-hmm. and uh, especially like your specialty area right so yep. me i'm really pretty blind past the 70s like i've seen some tentpole films that are like Mm -hmm. classics of course but like the area where i start to get really thin is like the 70s and earlier than that and you know that's because a lot of my formative you know movie years where i got to choose what i wanted to watch was in the 90s and so i get to see a lot of what's new and what's on cable and that's mostly stuff that was recent at the time so that's kind of like where i have I don't know I wouldn't call it a specialty but there's a reason yeah. that a lot of the stuff on bad movies we love is from the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. I mean that is the era kind of 
for at least for uh, nostalgia wise whenever i think of stuff that i do really love but i know is not necessarily good <laughs> in quotes is usually from that era but actually that ties into you know if you want to talk about when you started actively watching films because it sounds like you started pretty young yeah i mean if you want to say active in terms of like i was the one making the decisions it was yeah. probably like the mid 90s around the time mm -hmm. i was 10 11 years old like my dad had passed when i was seven and so my mom was in single parent mode and you know, mm -hmm. I had three younger sisters that all came from my mom. And so she had a lot on her plate and it was yeah. easier to just sort of let us, you know, self guide. And I was at the age where I'm the oldest one. It's like I'm in that position where it's like, oh, I'm 12. I'm the babysitter now kind of thing. Yeah. So at around that time, it was like I we had gotten cable in the house. I kind of like got my own setup in my room so I could watch cable. I was watching a lot of inappropriate stuff like I should not have been <laughs> watching Oz on HBO when I was as young as I was. But it allowed me to really just like find a desire to watch stuff that was like very adult when I was very young. So at the time that I was growing up, uh, like among my other friends, like their tastes were dialed down in terms of like, mm -hmm. you know, adult stuff. So I would say probably, yeah, around the mid nineties, uh, that was when I started making my own decisions. And I was just talking to, uh, Vanya about this the other day mm -hmm. in that Gattaca, was a movie that we went to go see in theaters in 97 for my sister's birthday. So it released sometime nice. in October of 97. And it was like my sisters and her friends and they were hating it and they just left. And so I was like, I am interested. I want to stay. And mm -hmm. I stayed and my mom came and picked me up later. And Gattaca is like my favorite movie. So, oh, wow. You know, it that. was something like that. But I was like 13 years old. At that time, being like, this is something I'm interested in. I don't want to leave just because they don't care. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so ever since then, it's been like stuff like that and a lot of bad stuff in between. But hey, we need, uh, you know, that duality in life. <laughs> so today we're talking about Christine, the 1983. Yeah. Do you recall the first time you watched this film? I don't, but it was one of probably the first horror films that I watched. And mm -hmm. When people have asked me about like formative horror, it was all stuff that my mom liked. So it was Rosemary's mm -hmm. Baby and it was Carrie and it was Jaws and stuff from the 70s and a little bit earlier that uh, like the Omen, like stuff that didn't really launch into like slashery type of franchise films. And Christine mm -hmm. was one of those movies. And it's a little bit older than the other ones in that category, but it is a, a standalone project. And, you know, I think maybe that's the reason that I kind of like horror in that way. Give me, give me yeah. the one that's good. And then that's, that's cool. Go make a different, yep. interesting horror movie. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We don't need like seven Christines. Right. You know. I mean, would I watch them all? Yes, of course. <laughs> Am I going to watch the new one that's in development? Uh, begrudgingly, but yes, probably. Yeah, I did hear about that. We'll see how it goes. In the right hands, yeah. it can be done well. If they try to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, mm -hmm. I'm not as confident, but the right person that loves the original, that understands yeah. the source material that is a fan of Carpenter and what he was doing at the time, I think there is room to make a second one. And, you know, you just can't try to be the first one. 
and then yes exactly then you'll, then you'll have a chance that's exactly how i feel it's it's interesting because you say you know this is something that your mom liked too and i definitely watched this a lot as a kid because my mom mm-hmm. loved this and she loved all the stephen king adaptations like we used to watch this firestarter carrie a lot oh, yeah firestarter that's another one yeah firestarter for some reason was a huge one in our house uh we used to watch we had the vhs we used to watch it a lot <laughs> it's like a lot of fun um but christine was one i just kind of grew up watching and it was on tv a lot in canada for some reason and then like just kind of watched it over and over again and then it had been a few years since i watched it and i watched it again Maybe three to four years ago, just being like, oh, you know, I really want to watch Christine and see how it holds up. And I just loved it even more. I was like, I couldn't believe how good it looked for a film. You know, it's not like it's that old, but 83 is still 40 years ago (laughs) at this point. Right. So, which is wild. (laughs) Talking about John Carpenter, though, are you a fan of his work? How do you rate this within his filmography? Yeah, I am a fan of Carpenter's. I don't really like. I would say that the amount of energy that I would put into trying to rank films <laughs> that way would be so overwhelmingly daunting that I just don't even try. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> if you really wanted Carpenter rankings, I could do it. But I would be like, can I get back to you next year? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of like my favorites, although I would acknowledge that there's other movies of his that are on paper better Mm -hmm. films uh movies that i enjoy i would still say that this is my favorite of them yes that's why we bonded and that's why i immediately was like i need to have you on for christine because it's one i find it's not one that's talked about within his filmography that often and when i tell people it's my favorite carpenter they're like no it's gotta be halloween or it's gotta (laughs) be like the thing and i'm like no (laughs) (laughs) Halloween doesn't even rank in my top three or top five. And I do like it, but I'm more of a Christine, they live type of carpenter. Me too. Person. Well, I'm ready to get into the movie because it was a lot of fun rewatching it. It's definitely become one where I watch it every year and I just never get tired of it. But since this is a show where I kind of focus on the director's, you know, stamp on the film itself. I do want to focus on that, but it would be kind of silly for me not to acknowledge the fact that it is a Stephen King adaptation. So have you read the book? I have not. Neither have I. Okay. (laughs) I know. That's probably why I like the movie so much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's rated as being one of the better adaptations of the book. That might also be because it's probably not one of his more popular books that people have read, Mm -hmm. along with the fact that it's... uh, carpenter and it is genuinely a good film but it has that you know precedence to it so people are kind of going into this with being like oh this is stephen king and some people don't rate it as a horror film some people do how do you feel about that like i consider it a horror film like because horror is such a broad genre it doesn't need to just be slashing you know or like murder all the time but it's horrifying what's happening so i don't know how you feel about it being within that genre i mean i don't know what other genre i could Mm -hmm. put it into like you know maybe like high school movies but i mean it's a car that's possessed by a demon of some kind or a ghost and it kills everybody like that's a horror movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's what i it's weird when i hear people are like i don't know you know if that's really a horror film i'm like just because there's not people dying every second doesn't mean it's not horrifying like 
like I said, I grew up watching this movie. So if there's like a car park, you know, if you're in like a parking lot and there's like cars like obviously parked and then you walk in between, I'm always like, this car is going to Christine me. So I got to go behind <laughs> it. <laughs> it's just a thing that my siblings and I would say, but like the car is going to Christine you if you don't, you know, move out of its way. So yeah, I would consider it a horror film, but I'm glad that you mentioned like, you know, the teen and high school aspect of it because it is technically a teen film. It's about teenagers. Yeah. And it might not be like a comedy of some sorts, but it is about teenagers uh, who are in high school and high school is a very big part of this film. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to see the dynamic between the two leads. So we've got Dennis and Arnie, who's on paper and most films and most books, any sort of art, usually would not be friends. And if they are yeah. fil- friends, we need to kind of explain, oh, it's because they grew up together. So, you know, but they kind of hiding. But they're out in the open, very good friends. And they're obviously one's a jock and one's a nerd if we're going to put them in those you know, categories. How do you feel about the way the film treats that and that it's not like a big deal? It's just sort of like this is factual. They're friends and they are there for each other until they're not. Yeah, well, in listening to you talk about uh, De Palma and how he presents some of these things, I really enjoy that Carpenter here just allows me to fill in the blanks for myself. It's like the explanation is that, yeah, they were probably like childhood friends and then they Mm -hmm. grew up together. They're in the same town. They go to high school together and you write a jock character who is very atypical jock for the time. I mean, like, sure, he plays football. He's the good looking kid. He's got the cheerleader girlfriend and all that stuff. But everything else about him is very much dialed down away from that and it's one of my favorite things about this movie and Mm -hmm. in thinking about it for preparation i was like this is like if carpenter and king got together to make a john hughes movie yeah and i don't know i kind of love that about it and Mm -hmm. i love that they have this friendship that enables the turn that we get in this film because otherwise like it's not effective if the jock guy is just a douchebag yes I I definitely agree. I think it just adds like another layer to even just how Arnie was able to kind of get sucked into this because we do get the backstory of who the previous owner was and he was like a family guy or he had a family. There's a distinction there. (laughs) You can have a family and not be a family guy. (laughs) So he had a family, but he was an adult, right? So with addiction of some sorts... You're more apt to believing that, yeah, this guy could get sucked into this because, you know, he's unhappy. He's older. He's a nerd. He's being bullied by other kids in the school. He has issues with his parents. And that might seem all like on paper, all the things that happens to a teenager. But it's I think it was very believable the way, you know, his dynamic between his parents, specifically the mother who's just like on him all the time and all the time. And she's even on, you know, Dennis, who's not her son. And she's just giving him a hard time just for being there. So I just I really like the way they wrote all those characters and the actors that they got. I think you got really great performances. And I like that the main bully buddy, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's his name, looks like he's like 35 to 40 years old. Yeah, he's been <laughs> held back a few times in this high school. <laughs> A few times, uh, some facial hair, some, uh, you know, just the whole look. I was like, Sarah, you are not 17. <laughs> there's, you haven't been 17 for a good decade or two. But I think there's a lot of great performances by the two leads in this. Dennis, I haven't seen that often. Arnie was in Dress to Kill, which is a film I covered. Yeah. 
And it's just great performances from from both of them. But we talk about they're in high school. A big topic is dating, relationships, sex. Arnie has not partaken so far. He falls in love with this car. This kind of a sexual awakening once he gets Christine and making her up to be who he wants to be. And that transformation. How do you feel that the parallel between that in his life and what's happening with him and Christine? Well, I think it's handled pretty adeptly because another one of the things that is happening in high school is you're getting your learner's permit and your driver's license and you're getting your Mm -hmm. first car and it's giving you independence is really what that represents. And I mean, in a lot of other films uh, from the 70s as well that focus on cars and the open road, it is about this sense of freedom. And Mm -hmm. in the way that they structure this character with his overbearing parents and uh, him, you know, not being good with ladies, Mm -hmm. the car represents so many different things for him. It represents like a real romantic relationship. It represents power, represents freedom. It represents like him being a cool kid in a school where, like you mentioned earlier, like in the class system of high school, like he would be on the bottom rung where his friend Mm. would be among like, you know, the popular kids. So Christine, in this sense, represents so much to him that I love the investment on his level as an actor Mm -hmm. to really take it to that place of like treating her like she's a actual woman where he's like the way I in reading about it he said the way that he touched the car the way he interacted with her was as if he was treating her like a real person and Mm -hmm. that comes across the screen really well and it pays off when that moment when the switch gets flipped and like he's aware of her sentience then it's like oh wow now they've really like become this bonded couple in that way. And it's really powerful. And that scene in the movie itself where that like weird synth music kicks in and the headlights kick on like goosebumps every time. Always. Love it. It's one of my favorites. Like I wish I could just have that as a poster on my wall because yeah. I feel like it'd be like beautiful. I want that as like my tech sound. I got to figure out how to do that. Yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> should. No, I like what you're saying, the way he interacts with Christine, even the way he talks about her and to her, because he talks to her often. You know, there's that scene when after he's now he has he has a girlfriend at this point. Once he gets Christine, he gets confidence. He's got a girlfriend who's the new girl in school who is don't know if it's because she's new that everyone wants her or what the deal is. She's a very attractive woman, despite the fact that I will say the wardrobe they gave her was horrendous. It really upsets <laughs> me every time I see him. Like, what is this sock long short combo that she's always wearing? It really pisses me off. I'm like, are they trying to make her seem like a nerd? Because this is not working here. But he's got a girlfriend. They're at a drive-in as, you know, kids did back in the day. Go to drive-in movies to make out. She's sensing there's a vibe with Christine. And it makes her uncomfortable. She doesn't want to be in this car. And Christine tries to kill her. (laughs) Tries to choke Mm -hmm. her. And so there's that scene. Before we even get into later. She was talking shit. (laughs) Yeah, she was. And then we get the signal of the the music comes on. So that's a big thing with the music. So we see it right from the beginning of the film. When Christine is on the factory line. And things are happening to her that she doesn't like you know someone's ashing a cigar in her she's like 
okay, you're gone now. The, the music comes on. That's the signal that mm-hmm. she's upset and it's something's going to go down. But it's not aggressive music. It's like, you know, 50s style, like pop music. So how do you feel about that signal and that trope that they're using? I mean, I love it because I don't think at the time that it was a trope. Right. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen now like Michael Bay's made like a dozen Transformer films where one of the main characters his only way to communicate is through the radio and cycling through channels to find like just tidbits to communicate. Mm-hmm. So in envisioning how a car like would communicate, like besides revving the engine and moving, I like the music cues because also the song selection too. like when you listen yeah. to the lyrics of the songs that are being selected in those scenes, they're very appropriate for yeah. what's happening. I mean, granted, when the song was written and produced back in the 50s or whatever, it was not like a murder song. It's a love yeah. song, but the lyrics <laughs> Hold up when you understand the context of the relationship between mm. Christine and Arnie. Which I love. Yeah. And I think the music, honestly, not just the music that's chosen, but the score and the just the sound effects cues in this are mm-hmm. all so well done. And when you think of a guy like Carpenter, you know, you think of the thing and mm-hmm. Escape from New York and Halloween. And I mean, obviously, Halloween has great music. But in terms of John Carpenter, like, I don't know that a lot of people realize that like he's a composer as well and he's Mm -hmm. done the music on over 40 different projects so like he's so well versed in the understanding of why the music is important and when it should come into play that it really like hits those moments in this film so well i i definitely agree with that it's it's interesting the way that comes about it's something that you kind of always just remember and then it signals you know, what's going to happen. And I just kind of love that. I never get tired of it when it happens. It's not like it happens that there aren't that many kills or deaths in this film, but I just love when it comes on because then you're like, okay, which way is she going to do it? (laughs) You know, because it's different every way with Lee, the girlfriend, she's having her, you know, choke on something, which is interesting because it's like, there was no, often there's like a part of the car that's, killing them but that was just like it's its own thing that had her you know just choke on a piece of popcorn or whatever it was she was eating but then we kind of go forward he's dropping her home and they have an argument and he gets back into the car and the car's not starting and he's talking to her he's kind of like soothing christine and being like come on start you know this and that he's talking to her like she's jealous it's, it's yeah <laughs> it's his woman yeah and then she starts so then you're like okay if you as a viewer at that point don't think there's something, then you for sure at that point, you're like, okay, now I see what's <laughs> happening. If you weren't believing it beforehand, there's no way you can't believe it at that point. There's kind of like a touch on addiction here. It's not a straight up addiction, but he is addicted to the feeling that Christine gives him because he has a confidence now and it feels good. It starts from even the addiction uh, of wanting to fix her up. You know, he's not Mm -hmm. really hanging out with his friend anymore. He's not really paying attention to school. His mind is just once, it's like just set on Christine and he needs that fix. Did you see that kind of parallel 
between that and, you know, his fixation on making Christine to be who he wants to reflect to the world. Yeah, as I've gotten older, it's something that I picked up on. It wasn't something that I noticed when I was young. I was like, hey, Mm -hmm. this car is killing people. It's a rolling fireball. Like, this is great. In terms of looking at it from a place of addiction, this is the 80s. There is Mm -hmm. a lot of cocaine in Hollywood. And not like there isn't cocaine in Hollywood now, but it was less spoken about, at least outwardly. And so I like the allusions to this being like a drug, because the first time that Arnie does, at least for us as the audience, come across Christine is he's the passenger in his friend's car. And he just like sees this rusted, broken down car that he really in his mind would have no idea actually ran. Mm-hmm. There would there would be nothing presenting outwardly to make him think that, oh, I could grab this car and fix it up like he'd only yeah. started taking shop that semester. So it's like he's having these delusions already. And I think it is this adjustment of self view that like this addiction is going to make him the person that he really believes that he wants to be. And for a while it's working like with a lot of addictions, like, Hey, Mm -hmm. this seems like it's cool. It's giving me the thing that I want. And then the longer you're in it, the more destructive it is, the more it tears down all the relationships around you. And that, you know, you end up in this where you have people trying to do an intervention and it doesn't work. And so you have to sort of do it by force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely there. It's just not something that like I would have ever picked up on until, you know, I got older myself. Oh, no, the same. Exactly the same. And even the concept of like uh, him pushing everyone away, not only his family, but his friends, namely Dennis, who's someone who actively cares about, you know, Arnie. Uh, I like the interesting path that that took of, hey, we can't have him stop him right away. So we give him an injury (laughs) so he suffers a football injury which leads him to be in like strapped up in the hospital for however many months but that also helps dennis see how dark you know arnie is because he's not in it with him he's kind of there's a removed space between them because anytime arnie does come to visit him he sees the physical difference now with his friend and he's like you have a girlfriend you didn't even tell me like we're are we not best friends when's the last time you visited me you haven't come to visit what's going on with school i heard christine was totaled how did that happen and so on so we see the concern on his face of just like what's happening to you and what i do like is just you know how strong their relationship is because he could have just been like you know what this is not worth it like you do you your problem but he actively tries to you know fix this for him for the better there is the scene where now the bullies that we are introduced to early on they total christine makes me sick every time i watch it yeah (laughs) they're going hard on christine christine's to what we think is (laughs) is gone the next day christine is back in mint condition there's a few scenes where we see Christine reform, like go back into her her final Re-inflates. original form, essentially, no. and it it drives me like insane in the good way to see like how they did that, like it's just wild for 1983 to look so good. And I know we it's talk about this a lot in the film club of just like special effects, practical effects, and just the way 
effects have evolved. I don't know if you want to touch upon that because I know it's something that you're interested in, but I just, this is a film where I'm like, it's wild that more people don't talk about it for the effects alone. Yeah. If there was anything that you would maybe elevate to like the highest of its class from this film, it would have to be the practical effects. I mean, watching them just like sledgehammer poor Christine and like carve up <laughs> yeah. her leather interior and all that, like that's one thing. But the way that they used the, I think it was a plastic mold for the outside mm-hmm. of the car. And then they had hydraulics to crush it. And then they shot it and then played it in reverse. So we get mm-hmm. all of that sweet motion of everything like popping right back into place looking clean as it was before just the foresight to think of like how can we do this and tell this kind of story and make it look good on camera and like the more i watch it the better it looked yeah because they didn't cut corners like they smashed what 20 of these cars at least didn't cheap out i heard like what 15 20 percent of the budget was just on these cars <laughs> so carpenter knew like where his bread was going to be buttered in this movie and didn't cheap mm-hmm. out in finding a way to make that work and it pays off big time well exactly it's like well worth whatever the cost was for that alone because even if the rest of the movie wasn't good i would still remember it for those scenes where you like yeah. that's insane that they were able to do that it's just also a nice added bonus that it's surrounded by a legit movie yeah um instead of just relying on you know those scenes that you're kind of waiting up for so there's kind of parallel things going on here we've got arnie and christine we've got arnie and lee and dennis who's kind of in bed after christine is originally totaled by the bullies then we get christine on a mission She's on a mission to avenge herself. And those scenes that she's going after, the the bullies, the group of individually, seemingly there's no one behind the wheel of these cars. We don't see anyone behind the wheel. Whether you think that Arnie was there or not, we don't know. I like to believe that he wasn't there until the final scenes. Yeah. But that's up to interpretation there. It has some of the best, the bully scenes are probably some of the best killing scenes in the the film you know we get the one where christine kind of crushes herself through to get the guy in that little i don't know what you would call it i guess it's kind of where it's you like a loading dock a truck. yeah <laughs> a loading dock not very wide for a loading dock though <laughs> no it's not if christine can I'm like what kind of truck is fitting in there if this it's like christine's not that big and yeah i have to refer to her as christine she's not just a car because i don't want her haunting me but then I think the most famous one is when Christine goes through and the gas station catches on fire and she's just driving on fire on that dark road. Gorgeous. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like Lost Highway too. just that going down the road. Which I'm sure. I don't know. Lynch saw this. It was inspired by, you know, just the dark road and Buddy running along. Do you have a favorite scene involving Christine going after a prey? <laughs> I mean, I'm a huge fan of like real pyrotechnics in film. Mm-hmm. So that scene is great. And I think when we went to see it in theaters, it was Kristen's first time seeing it. I could have sworn we had watched it another time, but she was like, no, I didn't watch it. So I'm like, OK, mm-hmm. well, we'll we're going to go anyway. So yeah. you'll get a chance. And 
in that moment, like when we walked out of the theater, she was like, wow, how did they like do that with the fire on the cars? Like that car's really on fire is how they did it. Like they covered in some sort of like flammable jelly. They lit it on fire and then they just drove it down the dark street. So I loved that they just took the time and the care to like really put that in there. And I'm also a big fan of the Ghost Rider character from Marvel Comics and Mm -hmm. whichever iteration of Ghost Rider it is, whatever he's riding turns on fire. So it's like it hits a real nice sweet spot for me. But Mm -hmm. so the scene where she rebuilds herself in the garage is not a kill scene, but that's probably my favorite of them. And Mm -hmm. then the one where she does smash herself to narrow herself down to squash that guy because you get this moment where he's terrified she's chasing him and then it's like okay we've come to a standstill i'm safe even though this crazy car is trying to kill me yeah and then you see that christine is not afraid at all of causing herself physical harm in order to do what needs to be done and so like as she's inching closer in that moment too it's like the realization for him that oh wow i'm just gonna die here now because this car is insane well, they say that his, you know, legs were pinned <laughs> to the wall and he was essentially cut in half. She's mean. Yeah. <laughs> Something that you mentioned I really liked that you said that Christine can see him and we can tell that Christine is on the hunt. And it's weird because we get a lot of shots of Christine kind of head on and the, the use of headlights along with the, mm. the use of music gives her a kind of facial expressions. Yeah. And a personality that we can kind of follow along with, which I find interesting. It's just like another layer. And I think to me, why Carpenter is just so meticulous with everything he does, like this purpose to everything that he's doing. And you're talking about even the pyrotechnics, like that's something I'm sure also cost a lot of money. And there had to be someone in that car driving it. So. that's just like another layer of being like yeah we're just going to do it because why wouldn't we do it we're making a film here which we don't see as as, and i'm not trying to bash on newer films because i know that how i come across often but i guess it's just weird to me to see the regression on things i know some things might be easier to do digitally but it's always like something like this we remember you know the scene that you're talking about with the cars. So yeah, similar to the scene in RoboCop where the gas station explodes and you have a guy in the fireproof suit having to walk through Mm -hmm. that fire in order to shoot that scene. Like there's a reason that these kinds of movies have staying power and iconic scenes in them is because there was a lot riding on it. Like you're Mm -hmm. risking a lot. And I think the viewer understands that better, even if it's like not this explicitly stated thing watching something done practically gives you an appreciation for it even if you can't quite put the words to why that is Hmm. i mean that's why i've been watching it for the past who knows at least 20 years of my life and definitely plan on keep watching it there's someone i want to talk about i've been kind of keeping it towards the end of the conversation i want to talk about harry dean stanton (laughs) because you have to i am not surprised I mean, I'm sure I've said it on the show before. He's my all-time favorite actor. Yes, and that is above Brett Lancaster if I have to rank them. Wow. But Where is he in your hierarchy of husbands? Harry Dean. Yeah, is he number one? I don't know. It's sometimes with certain men I like, I like them. It's more of a respect thing as opposed to 
I I mean, I would have married him if he asked, but <laughs> like, it's a different type of love than for like Burt Lancaster, but he's still a husband. He's just someone who anytime he shows up in a film and the same with this, where you're like, okay, things are getting good. And it's weird because he doesn't show up until an hour into this movie. And if you were either anticipating because you watched this movie knowing he was in it or you saw his name in the opening credits, you're like, wait a minute, where is Harry Dean? <laughs> and it's the timestamp's an hour in, which makes sense because he plays a cop, right? We don't need the cops before this because nothing has happened that would merit the cops coming in to the film. And he does such a great job with the minimal amount of screen time that he's given. You know, he's very straight to the point, but he lets the audience know and already know that, hey, I know what's happening. I just need to prove it. And you're going to slip up because you're a teenager and you've got a lot of pent up anger. <laughs> so the the movie's only like an hour and 40. So we've got like 40 minutes of like now it's turned into, you know, there's actual crimes and is now sort of like a detective story going on. How do you feel about that? There is like a slight shift in tone there where you're like, oh, now there's like an, another sense of you know, impending danger here. That's not just Arnie's let loose or Christine's let loose. Now it's like the law's involved and what's going to happen here. I will say that it didn't bother me a lot when I was younger, but mm -hmm. looking that this is a movie that like the meta score is 57, it's got a 6.7 on IMDb. So like respectable, but also pretty close to being in the wheelhouse for bad movies we love. And I would say if there's one thing that this movie does that maybe is a fumble would be that Harry Dean Stanton is not in it nearly enough. He's yeah. too good to sort of be passive in the way that he is. And mm -hmm. even if you just move up the timeline where like the first Christine kill happens and it's not an hour in and you just make the back half of the movie. I mean, this is almost a two hour movie. You could do a first and second half that way. And mm -hmm. you have him investigating more and sort of like tightening the thumbscrews on Arnie and putting more pressure on him, which is in turn like driving him more insane, which doesn't really ever happen. It's kind of mm -hmm. like a wink, wink and a nod of like, look, kid, I know you did this. You look guilty as hell. I can't quite prove it yet, but it's pretty obvious that it's you. Yeah. <laughs> you know there's not that many cars that look like that around and mm -hmm. uh we heard what happened to your car <laughs> seems to be in pristine condition and they even go down to the fact that like hey this paint basically does not exist anymore yeah so he's clearly done his homework before interviewing the kid which is great because it lets you know that like he's a good cop he's already mm -hmm. done his research before getting to the point where he's going to approach the person that he really believes is the culprit so mm -hmm. it gives there's like so much texture in his character and his delivery and like you said his screen presence is just so amazing that i selfishly want him to be a lot more yes. involved than he actually is and it doesn't play out that way but at, at its core it really is the story of like these two friends and christine so it needs to come down to them in that way at least yeah i mean i will always ask for more harry dean yeah. and i do agree where it's like Maybe if a different actor had portrayed this character, you would just be like, okay, I don't really care about the cop. But at this point in Harry Dean's career, this is actually just a year before Paris, Texas, but he's still known, you know, at least if you don't know his face or his name, you know his face. He's one of those actors that everyone's like, oh, I know that guy from yeah. this or that. And there's a reason why it's not, it's almost treated like a cameo of some sorts where you're like, oh, yeah. Harry Dean's come in. 
he's been given a couple scenes and then that's it. He's there for the final scene, which I like. Yeah. It's like a weird, <laughs> like three amigos just standing there <laughs> together. But yeah, I I will always be more into, you know, more Harry Dean. I guess, is there anything else before the, you know, the final scene that you wanted to chat about? I mean, yeah. I'd just say like having just watched it, like it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's two hours. It's no, it's pretty brisk. And so like as I'm watching it and seeing Harry Dean Stanton, I'm like, well, where like could he fit in to more of this? Because I don't want you to take away the relationship between the friends. I don't mm-hmm. want you to take away Christine being Christine. Uh, I don't want to take away from any of the visual effects that you guys spent all this time and mm-hmm. money on. So there's not really anywhere where you could like trim the fat and then put in more of this detective story. Like the only answer would be like, you make this hour two hours, 15 minutes, you yeah. put a little bit in there and the back end, you really split it firmly into two halves where there is an investigation going on. And then maybe we go with Harry Dean Stan to talk to the victims of the, you know, or the yeah. families of the victims. And that just doesn't seem like it fits in this movie, but it does seem like there is maybe a secondary story that's yeah. available there. I do always wonder, Especially every time I watch, I'm like, I wonder if there was more that they shot and they realized this is taking from the actual core of the story. So they cut it because why bring in Harry Dean in such a care in the way even he enters his first scene? It's like it's like a, a grand entrance to his character. And then he's not really given much else to do. So I feel like there must have been more that they were just like, hey, we have to sacrifice this because it's just kind of taking away from it which i agree i'm sad about less harry dean but it's also like doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film either i mean he's also like probably the biggest name in the cast him and robert Mm -hmm. broski were probably the two biggest names so in terms of like marketing like if you're gonna have a movie or like come see christine it's got harry dean stanton and you're like okay i'm coming and then you're like wait a second he's barely in this movie (laughs) yeah you could have sued back in 83 (laughs) false advertising i came to see harry dean and he's barely in this movie yeah i'd be like i'm sorry he's in this for 10 minutes though i will tell you an anecdotal story though Uh, yeah so my my not my first car but my second car was red toyota celica named christine because of this movie and when i when she finally found the end of her road like she's like 16 years old and leaking and wow. she doesn't repair herself like she does in no. the movie so uh <laughs> but i've stayed with red cars and oh, yeah? the only thing i wanted when i went to the dealership i was like it needs to be red and it needs to be stick shift and those are the only two things and so this car that i currently have is not christine but you know my wife to be is Christine. so yeah <laughs> pretty close well i do want to take a bit, uh, talk about the the final scene there because i always find it really funny in a good way, because we get the, they essentially, well, if we track back, actually, because we didn't even talk about the fact that Arnie's dead. <laughs> he dies <laughs> in this movie. Um, He dies for Christine out of love. You know, there's the whole scene of now we see Arnie is driving this car and he's going after Lee and Dennis uh, in the auto shop. And um, I also want to give 
little shout out to the auto shop owner who is really funny too. Uh, he has a really great scene where he offers Arnie like a job. He's like, hey, if you do some work around here, you can take all the parts you want. And Arnie's like, I'll think about it. <laughs> He's like, just say yes. He's letting you take free parts. But Arnie's driving. They have like a whole showdown. He gets impaled by a piece of glass and dies. So that's the end of that. They think Christine is gone, but no. And they have to literally go over her with the huge tractor multiple times to fully crush her. And then they compact her and she's thrown into like a junkyard, essentially. She's in a box, crushed. We get the three of them. We get Harry Dean, Dennis and Lee. And they're kind of watching the car. And they're reminiscing about Arnie saying, you know, sucks that he also had to die we weren't able to fix him or save him then we hear music playing the type of music that plays in christine and you're like what and it's a guy walking by in a jukebox which i love (laughs) i love that kind of like jokey ptsd yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is fun but then the final scene just before the credits we see a piece of christine moving do you think it's just for the end of the movie do you think christine's still alive do you think she can reform herself she's gonna yeah absolutely just give her some time she'll she'll deal with it eventually uh yeah because it's like i view christine as uh like a predator but she's Mm -hmm. also a parasite in the way that like if she doesn't have a bond with somebody she can't function in the way that she needs to that's why she's sitting outside this guy's house like she's got no motivation she's Mm -hmm. like not keeping herself up if she's not all shiny and brand new sitting in this guy's driveway she's like covered in dirt and leaves and probably cobwebs growing all over her so it's not until she develops that bond with somebody that Mm -hmm. she becomes this other thing but she is kind of like this otherworldly entity where there is no story of like how she got possessed or uh, a demon came up from hell and was going to possess a person and then ended up in this car's engine and like there's none of that so you just have to sort of appreciate what we're actually given and in that Mm -hmm. i'm like yeah she's just this thing like her the form that this being decided to take was this gorgeous 1958 plymouth fury and i love that first scene where they introduce her to that factory color was that beige that all the other ones are and then she she just rolls up on the assembly line just shining and some guy touched her wrong she chops his fingers off Uh, (laughs) christine's a feminist though she is like she's big time (laughs) feminist this is one of the earliest feminist works (laughs) no yeah i like that thing too where it's like no one questions why there's this random red car on the line with all the other ones but yeah, I there's a scene that that final scene where you see like a part of her moving reminded me, even though, you know, the two characters are polar opposites, but it reminded me of the Iron Giant. <laughs> I yeah. you've seen that. Yeah. And like that one. final scene of like, you know, I'm going to make myself whole again. Just I'll find myself, just give me time. So I'm sure Christine's rolling around somewhere out there. In my in my heart she is. Yeah. Does this take place in LA? Uh, yeah, a lot of it was filmed in Pasadena. Okay, because I was like, it gives off LA vibes without explicitly saying that that's where they are. But yeah, it's a great movie. It is. It's. It seems like it just. I mean, Carpenter's like is such an iconic director in you know a certain way that when you look at a movie like this and try to like 
uh, maybe compare is not the right word, but when you mm-hmm. look at his library of stuff, this is not the one that became like the identifiable one. And it's sad because it does so many of the things or it showcases so many of the things that he does really well mm-hmm. as a filmmaker. And I think you get the combination of like creature feature where mm-hmm. like the creature just happens to be this car and this like high school drama that we get to see unfold. And it's interesting that we know Christine's bad, but yeah. I cheer for her to run down the bullies. <laughs> Because he does such a good job of making us dislike the bullies. It's like, it'd be one thing if he's getting teased and shoved in a locker, but this dude whipped out a knife on him. Like the first time we meet him, he's like, I will kill you. And so they make, yeah, he makes the threat very apparent, very tangible Mm -hmm. and worth Christine's effort to fight for her man, I guess, in this case. Yeah. And I love that about this movie because even when we know she's bad like back to the addiction thing like we know she's bad we know she's bad for him we know she's Uh evil but guess what like i want to see her do the evil thing and when i'm seeing her get smashed up i'm sad that moment where Artie first goes into the garage after christine got smashed like the feeling that i have in my stomach when he sees the car destroyed like after he put all that work into it i'm like oh my god that i feel that every time and so yeah. I'm like, yeah, when she rebuilds herself and she wants to go run these assholes down, like, go get them. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, that guy was definitely going to commit a crime if he yeah. I'm sure he's already committed crimes, but he was going to commit a murder anyway. So yeah, he's hiding out just, in high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's 21 Jump Street, except he's a murderer. <laughs> yeah. So it points back to this like thing of like, we know that the addictive thing is bad for us, yet mm-hmm. we still like the addiction part of it anyway so i think yeah you know it's kind of poetic in that way too i mean there's just so much craft behind this film and like we've been saying it's kind of sad that it's not more wildly viewed or talked about and whenever i mention it to people and say oh man i love christine they're like oh is that the movie with the car that kills people they just kind of think it's silly which on paper that concept is kind of silly it's more the execution of it and the fact that hey it's like this is a stephen king novel that they're adapting it from you can it allows you to suspend your disbelief because you're like you got that in the back of your mind being like okay i know what stephen king's deal is he likes to make things that are you know something like a car killing people that sounds very stephen king like and i just think that carpenter was really knocked it out of the park even someone like you know carpenter de palma where they like i think they truly understand the source material and they're like this is how i can elevate it or put it into my own words because uh, I haven't read that much Stephen King. I don't love his style of writing as much, but like I love the stories, and I think that's why they make for great films because other people can do <laughs> better things with it. Not always that someone like Carpenter clearly did. Uh, not that I've read the book, but I'm sure it's a little bit better, at least on par with it. And just there's just so much craft behind it instead of just making it like a schlocky film. Which would have been fine, too. But it's like, this is the reason why we're talking about it today. And I think it maybe in a lot of people's minds falls in between being something that is schlocky because of the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you really don't know what to make of it. And that would make sense when someone's like, well, like, I don't look at it as a horror film. I mean, obviously, we do. But 
it, it makes sense that someone would be like, well, I don't understand like how a movie about a killer car like would be like a real horror film, you know, and this mm-hmm. movie is a real horror film. And a lot of the stuff that's horrifying isn't even necessarily the stuff about the car. It's more about this character's descent into madness that is terrifying and the car being the catalyst for that. Mm-hmm. And I think what helps that also is getting that backstory of the previous owner. And that's not even like the original owner of Christine, the previous owner who we kind of touched upon the fact that he had a family. And when Arnie finds this car, it's his brother who's has the car now because previous owner committed suicide in the the car. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, his wife had done that. And prior to that, their daughter had suffocated in the car. So there's a lot of death going on within Christine. And then we get the same that happens to multiple people, but also Arnie as well. Even though he dies a little bit outside of her, but it's through, you know, a piece of her glass. That's the only way. He goes through the windshield, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And then... The auto shop owner even says, like, when he first brings in the car, he's like, oh, I knew a guy who used to have a car Mm -hmm. like that killed himself. And he's like, oh, so he knew the brother. Mm -hmm. And so to me, like, you're telling you're telling me this story of a car that we start in 1957, 58, where it's coming off the assembly line. And then 20, I think the movie takes place 77 to 78 or 78, 79. So it's 20 years down the line where this car is officially a classic. But, Mm -hmm. you know, has it had more deaths under its belt than just the previous owner that we know about. I it seems so. like that is the case. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll tackle that in the remake. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, I am. I, of course, approach it with trepidation, but yeah, I like that at the end of this movie, like if there is no killing her in that way, right? You did everything you could. You tried to run her over with a, tank i mean it's a bulldozer but yeah yeah and in that scene too like as she's trying to escape she's like reinflating the tires like she's almost getting away and i'm just like that's hard for me to watch still because it's like i don't want her to die but i know that like yeah you can't just have this murderous car running (laughs) around all over the place uh unaccounted for so i understand it but if you're going to look at like where this movie left off you're left with two options either Mm -hmm. This is a scrap heap kind of car and you just treat it as a direct sequel and you Mm -hmm. that way you can acknowledge that the first one exists, but you don't have to be so dependent on like the Easter egg kind of mentality of like this is what do they call it now a requel where it's like a remake and a sequel. Um, Mm -hmm. So like if you're not so dependent on having to sort of spend a lot of your time and creativity drawing back to the first one and you can just make this a sequel this far down the line. I mean, you're removed enough 40 years now where this car is like even older, more of a classic than it ever was before. Obviously, the mileage does not matter. So (laughs) (laughs) It could be like uh, another person goes to the junkyard and, you know, Christine mm-hmm. has reformed herself in the junkyard and she looks shitty and this person wants to buy it and refurbish it. And then we're kind of left with the same movie, but modernized. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll it'll see. be interesting to see. I definitely it's one of those where I'm like, they could, you know, it could be OK. We'll see. I, it's it's tricky also following in the footsteps of Carpenter as we've seen 
Yeah. Is there someone that you would trust to handle it? Like my mind was doing, you know, gymnastics there as we were talking. And I'm genuinely, I'm like, who would? I don't even know, to be honest. Do you have anyone? I mean, the person that I would have thought at least stylistically could do it would be Ari Aster, but he's too far beyond doing the remake if this was like right after hereditary or maybe like uh maybe even before hereditary which you wouldn't be approached to do a legacy sequel for that at that Mm -hmm. point but at this point like he's not gonna do it i know a lot of people don't like the guy who's taken up the reins who's david gordon green for uh, oh yeah for halloween so a lot of people don't even like him and i mean maybe james wan but he seems to have gone away from uh, exclusively horror at this point. Mm-hmm. So maybe you don't even get like a horror director. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe they could just get Carpenter to do it. Sam Raimi. He's still kicking get around. To do it. Yeah, get Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah, they Raimi, could. Raimi would make a really fun one. Yeah, he would. It'd be it'd be insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? I'm down for it. Well, I think we're ready to get into the final portion of the show, which is end credits. So We've been talking about Carpenter here throughout, and I know you've seen quite a few of his films. Uh, but if someone were to come up to you and say, where should I start? I've never seen a Carpenter film. What would you recommend? And I know it's like sometimes you recommend a film to a specific person because, you know, this is the one that will hook them. Uh, so you can go that route or you can go more of a broad route if you want. I would say if you're going to start with Carpenter... It, it never hurts to start at the beginning, but I would say mm-hmm. go for they go for they live because, you know, this movie is made for not a lot of money. Yeah. You have a pro wrestler who doesn't really do much the rest of his career. He's not like The Rock or John Cena that parlayed his acting into like a big movie career. Like you're going with Rowdy Rowdy Piper, who is yeah. a pretty solid actor, just didn't get the same kind of opportunity as those other guys. But you're taking him and pairing him with Keith David and you're putting him in this crazy sci-fi world. And like, if you really want to see sort of the, the depths of what John Carpenter can do with his imagination and not that much money, I think they live is a really good starting point. And then Mm -hmm. if you were to go from that to like Christine, you'd be like, Oh, Christine feels more like a movie that I'm accustomed to watching. Yeah. Whereas like they live is more well regarded because it is as crazy as it is, but it definitely defies some uh, traditional mm-hmm. movie logic of the 1980s. Yeah, that's actually interesting because I my mind immediately went to Halloween, maybe because that's what he's most known for ish. But then I think they live gives him the more well-rounded you know, vision of Carpenter because, yeah, you know, it shows off his craft but it also shows off like his silly side that you don't get in like a halloween but like you can't start with escape from new york type of deal because that's too far i think you kind of need to start with something like they live to be like okay i can see what he's able to do i see he has a sense of humor you can go either way to something a little bit sillier or you can go more serious christine has some humor behind it too because even just the way the teenage boys talk (laughs) about people in this movie which is dated and obviously a lot of problematic stuff now but that's how boys would have talked in high school so yeah uh i think layla would be a good spot so i agree i hadn't thought of it like that yeah and i mean like i 
I'm a big fan of his vampires as well, even though that's like way low on the totem pole amongst most people in Carpenter movies. But mm-hmm. I also like I enjoy Ghost of Mars. So it's like you can really see him having these sort of like big ideas and these mm-hmm. crazy ideas and tempering those ideas with humor, with balance, with good performances. And I think they live really just hones in on like all of that stuff. And it's probably like the best bang for buck Carpenter movie that I've seen where mm-hmm. it's like, wow, you really squeezed like everything out of this movie <laughs> and made this like crazy kind of cult hit that not a lot of people liked when I was young. And now yeah. has gone on to become like this iconic style of movie. And it was very prescient. And I think that's probably why it's gained some traction uh, since then. Mm hmm. Yeah, I did hear that a lot of people didn't like it. And it seems to, in the last few years, gotten like a huge, you know, cult status. I'm a huge fan of Double Bills. So this is usually my favorite question in the show. If you're pairing this film with another film, and you can pick more than one. Okay. But, oh yeah, no one ever gives me one. And I never have (laughs) just one. (laughs) But what film or films are you picking to pair this one with and what's the the rationale behind the pairing well i would say the easy answer is the car from 1977 it's not not too far removed from this it also has a demonic car that's hunting people Mm -hmm. uh this is elliot silverstein uh james brolin's in the lead and this is more of like more of like a western featuring the car but you know i think that's the easy answer for me um something a little bit in the same vein would be duel which i think is what 1971 which is a movie that i love it's another you know movie that my mom showed to me it's spielberg's first movie but it's a Mm made-for-tv movie and i talked to donald about this on his show like a it seems like a really long time ago at this point but you really see like the the structure that would become jaws and so i really love that about it and it does hone in on some of this mentality of like the freedom of having a car in the open road in front of you is like Mm -hmm. the ultimate American freedom because you know wide open spaces and then to have that interrupted by this car that is kind of like an entity as well we never really like meet the driver of the truck that is no, in dual yeah. like we, we see his arm out the window but really it's like its own thing at that point so it, it hones in on a couple of those things and then if you really want to get weird do like titane and then you'll really see yeah like, the depths of car on human romance yeah you may be mad at me after watching it but <laughs> i haven't seen that one yet uh i did see your other one raw but that one i don't know why i meant to see it and i haven't gotten around to it i eventually will dual was on my list too because it's my second favorite Spielberg yeah. uh, after Jaws because I'm a big Jaws head. Me but too. Duel, I I love that movie. And I immediately was like, this would be the best. For me, that's like the best night ever watching Christine and Duel. I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like this is, it's the stress that is involved in both those movies, but especially Duel. Like the first time I watched it, I was full-blown stressed out the whole time. It's and I was like, time. I don't know what's going to happen here. <laughs> it's very good. And it's like an underseen Spielberg, obviously, because, you know, it's his first, but very good. Seems like Spielberg does know how to make some movies. I don't know if anyone knows that, but Just it's a pretty good director. Two, <laughs> Just a couple under his belt. <laughs> the other one, because I wanted to go around the kind of, so the two that I picked, one was dual 
because I was like, you know, the car theme. The other one was, uh, you know, grounded on his addiction, but being one that was kind of a weird, originally in his mind, a hobby, but is obviously an addiction. So I thought of William Wyler's uh, The Collector, which is from 1965. It stars Terrence Stamp, and he's a butterfly collector, but he also likes to kidnap women and collect them. So... <laughs> Uh, it starts off as someone that you're like, oh, this guy's very sweet. He's collecting butterflies. And you're like, no, he's very much not. So uh, <laughs> if you're going for that vibe where you're like, oh, I want to see a, a weirdo do his thing on screen, I think those would be good pairings. Okay. <laughs> for your I have night. not seen that. I'll have to check that out. I think you'd like it. It's interesting. It's not my favorite William Wyler, but it's interesting to see what he did with it. And it's got a very young Terrence Stamp in that. I really like Terrence Stamp, so it's a, yeah. it's a big plus. Yeah. So then there you go. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Christine. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I was so nervous. I was like, oh, wow. I'm bringing my lowbrow humor and <laughs> no. sensibilities to this show that focuses so much on classic films and excellent filmmakers. Hey, I mean, this is a this is an excellent film. So I agree. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney and intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. While you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. 